0: Stop the witch hunts demands Johnny Mercer as he withdraws non-Brexit support for the government over historical allegations against veterans. That special relationship, it's back on as Pompeo and Hunt take tea in London. And army boxing draws the online crowds. The Conservative MP Johnny Mercer says he will no longer support the government in Parliament in protest at the prosecution of military veterans. In a letter to the Prime Minister, the former army officer demanded the government bring forward legislation to protect veterans from being repeatedly investigated over historical allegations.
1: He's been speaking to our reporter,
0: Rebecca Ricks.
1: Why have you decided to take this stance?
2: Well, I've been very clear. I've been campaigning on this for some time now, four or five years, and uh, I've done everything I could have possibly done to try and get the government to um, to actually move forward on the issue. Um, you know, we went through the Iraq historical allegations team process and exposing that. Um, sometimes not making a decision is a decision in and of itself. Um, and things have happened over the last few weeks. that's made it very clear to me that, you know, you have to kind of pick a side of, who, whose team you're on. Um, and I was very lucky to be voted in by the people of Plymouth. Um, I have a very clear mandate, I think, to stand up for issues like this, and that's what I'm doing.
1: And have you had a chance to get a feel for what the people of Plymouth, you know, think about what you... What, what
2: well, I've you kn- know, I've known for some time that uh, the uh, the sentiment in Plymouth around this, I've known for some time the sentiment in veterans communities about this. It is. It is very... Mm-hmm angry, Um, you know, there is a real depth of feeling there that I don't think anyone in Westminster quite understands. Um, My job is to represent that and I make no apology for it.
1: Uh, So, for the layman, what exactly does this mean in regards to the letter and your... It, It
2: simply means that I'm not prepared to support this government's legislative efforts any further until they actually bring in some legislation that's going to tackle this problem around historical allegations. This process of dragging our veterans through courts time and again um, on spurious allegations, sometimes these people are are, are, are dying they 're they're, they're in their 80s they they 're veterans. It is not a way a country looks after their service men and women. Um, it never should have been in the first place, uh, and i 'm afraid i 'm just simply not prepared to uh, put, put up with it any further given um, you know what has come to light in the last couple of weeks
1: and yeah, have you had a chance to speak to them in recent days about how you know they're dealing with the situation at the moment.
2: I speak to um, people going through this process all the time. I spoke to someone yesterday, just last Monday. Uh, Dennis Hutchings lives down here. Um, he is uh, he's turned down dialysis treatment um, because he wants to fight his case. You know, he will probably die before um, it, it comes to court. It is an atrocious way to treat your servicemen and women. Um, I have said this for some time, I'm not altering my position in any way, uh, it's simply that uh, events over the last couple of weeks have shown me that, um, um, you know, that I'm not really getting anywhere um, and uh, I need to take a stand on this issue.
1: What point did you realise that it needed to be a whole other level? So where we are today well
2: i went and played in a veterans football match on the weekend and i, I was genuinely sort of taken aback by the feeling not, not only against the government which obviously is is, is difficult enough but it was, it was beginning to sort of be against me as well because whilst i did do a lot on the iraq historical allegations team and other issues um you know it, it's hard sometimes for people to see what you're actually doing what are you going to do to actually challenge this process um, and um, you know, and I it's a long drive back from Blackpool. I had a lot of time to think, um, and, and uh, I've taken the decision I have.
1: Why wait until now to go against the government? What was the straw that broke the camel's back?
2: Well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't see myself as going against anything. I'm standing up for a very clear principle is that we look after those who have served. Um, if, if others, um, you know, wish to, to, to take that in a different way, then that, that's up to them. But for me, you know, a modern, compassionate Conservative Party absolutely gets issues like this right, um, and uh, I'm determined to take a stand on it.
1: Have you heard anything back from Downing Street yet about your position? Uh, I've heard nothing
2: from Downing Street and I, I don't expect to.
1: Who recommended to Cabinet to continue with the historic prosecutions? No idea. And why do you think maybe the other MPs with regular or TA backgrounds are not supporting you in this?
2: I'm not aware that people aren't supporting me. It's not a question of people supporting me or not. It's about doing what I think is the right thing to do. Um, Individuals will have their own decisions to make based on a number of factors, including their constituency and things like that. I I have uh, my decision and my view and and I'm stuck to it.
1: Do you you have any idea who inspired the whips to search for dirt on you?
2: Um, The individual who decided to try and rake up some dirt on me was Chris Pincher, the Deputy Chief Whip. Uh, The Government Chief Whip uh, takes no responsibility for it uh, and basically threatened me with with lawyers. So, to be honest, I I don't think anyone takes responsibility for it and I'm not prepared to be part of an organisation that treats individuals like that, I'm afraid.
0: That was Johnny Mercer. Well, with me in the studio is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. What do you make of what he had to say there?
3: i tell you what, a couple of weeks ago, 3,000 uh, uh, 3, uh, Harley Davidsons, and I was with a bunch of them, rode through London and blocked London up in the Mall, Pall Mall, etc., all to support Soldier F, the one that is being prosecuted in Northern Ireland. And there is the clue to the whole thing. All the guys turned out, and they'd all, Harley-Davidson riders who had been in the services at some, some time. And a whole lot of them were debating this, and they said, in Northern Ireland we would not have been allowed to cycle through there, to bike through there. And where you've got someone like Mercer, who's got a, a, a military constituency, Royal Marines, Navy, Army, Air Force, uh, there's a sensitivity which he can lose he'll get support. And he believes in it himself. You would not get this in Northern Ireland. And there is a clue to the uh, question that was asked, who in Cabinet has refused to allow uh, these historic uh, prosecutions to fall by the wayside? And the answer is they're not in Cabinet. They're the people in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland uh, MPs at Westminster, five of them, who said to, uh, or the just recently passed Defence Minister, no way... Do you let these guys off the hook
0: but johnny mercer the stand that he's actually taking it is for all veterans who might be pursued for historic allegations yeah isn't but it? the
3: thing that's stopping it is northern ireland but what do you, you know, think iraq wasn't the problem
0: what do you think about him making this kind of stand in this way is it going to make any difference
3: it's a very brave thing and also when you look at his majority it's a very brave thing uh when they come to the next uh, general election they'll turn around and say johnny mercer stood by us as a military constituency and it will have a value But I'm afraid at the moment it's got as much chance as 3,000 of us on on motorbikes had of making any impression on the government at all.
0: He's always maintained that if there is fresh evidence and that a prosecution is justified or or pursuing a prosecution, investigating is justified, if there is
3: fresh evidence. Nobody doubts that. Nobody doubts that at all, and I think he's probably right to, to, to say so and emphasise it. Otherwise, people say, well, it's just a, yet another because he, campaign. Because
0: he, his, his, his bugbear is with the process itself, and he's saying that it's solicitors, it's lawyers, it's ambulance chasers that are to blame for getting on this. Do, do you think do you think he has a point? And if he does have a point, how do you actually resolve that?
3: Well, it's partly that, but then again, the, the, the main effort of this is again back, going back into Northern Ireland. And therefore, a lot of the historic investigations are inspired by the politics of Northern Ireland. Island, and we're talking about a time 30 years ago and that makes all the difference when you start to campaign and you effectively campaign from guys who are certainly in their 70s with
4: oh,
0: still to come is libya being ignored and army boxing draws the virtual crowds
1: bfbs sit rep
0: The US top foreign policy man, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, has been in London this week with plenty to say. Big subjects, nuclear weapons and Iran. Don't let the Chinese into Britain's 5G. Sanctions on Chinese trade starting tomorrow. The collapse in politics in South Africa and Israel. We could go on and on, and they did. A lot to talk about. Professor Scott Lucas joins us from the University of Birmingham. Hello, Scott Lucas. Um, What is Pompeo's survival ranking in the Trump administration? Does the president listen to what he has to say?
4: Oh, uh, Mike Pompeo is probably one of the safest on the ship, no matter how rocky the waters get, because he was moved from the CIA to the State Department after his predecessor, Rex Tillerson, was fired, in part for calling Trump a moron. Pompeo will never uh, privately as well as publicly cross Trump even if he may have some questions about Trump's policies. And he is a fierce defender of Trump's approach, no matter how chaotic it gets in public. And perhaps most importantly, he looks good on television. He looks good on Fox and Friends when he's talking about how America, again, has reclaimed its rightful place in the world, in part coming over to Britain and telling us what to do.
0: Mm, Of that list, that checklist I read out, what do you think is the biggest issue of all that concerns the UK?
4: Well, I think the top issue probably that concerns both the Trump administration and the UK in terms of immediacy is Iran, because the Trump administration, and let's call it for what it is, wants regime change in Iran. They want to break the economy. They would like to get rid of the clerics uh, at the top of the system. The problem is, is that the Europeans don't agree with the tactics of quitting the nuclear deal, of imposing more sanctions on Iran. And now in the latest American move, moving air and naval forces into the Persian Gulf in a military flying the flag, which could turn into a show of force. So it's interesting that whereas Pompeo and Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary, stood side by side and talked about solidarity, the European Union at the same time was issuing a statement to Iran, which said, look, don't suspend your involvement in the nuclear deal. Don't resume nuclear. Uh, production of enriched uranium, let's deal with this, which is a far different approach than the U.S. confrontation-first strategy. But I would add that while Iran is the immediate issue, perhaps the longer-term issue to look at is the China issue and the Huawei issue for two reasons. Immediately, we have got a security issue where the United States doesn't want any involvement of Huawei in the 5G network in the U.K., We know that the cabinet, although split in the issue, in part because of the U.S. pressure, that the prime minister and most of the cabinet have agreed that Huawei can have an involvement in non-core elements. Pompeo was over here to say, you should rethink that decision. And I think in light of the United States embarking on a trade war with China and arguing that, in fact, others should take a more aggressive stance against Beijing, Britain right now is caught in between the Americans and I think the Europeans on this uh, on this critical issue.
0: Yeah, um, Christopher Lee. Uh, given what you just heard about the two those two issues with Huawei and Iran, where where the UK stands, not completely aligned with the US. How thriving, as uh, Mike Pompeo described it, do you think the relationship really is?
3: Well, the relationship is always thriving when America wants it to be. It's as simple as that, and that's the definition of the special relation relationship. Um, but without being cynical. Um, you can actually just remind ourselves, perhaps, you know, we, this nuclear deal we talk about um, the, in, in, with, with Iran, that was put together in, in 2016, 2017. Um, it means that wasn't necessarily by then uh, a, a Trump decision. And we've always got to remember that he's been determined to get rid of it since he got the job, uh, in fact, during the, during the campaigning. And so there's another in- instrument of politics that's taking place at the same time. The United Kingdom's got a problem. Uh, it, you know, It wants to get out, or says it wants to get out of, uh, of Europe as quickly as possible. But that that uh, statement by the EU is one which the United Kingdom puts its, its signature to it, uh, at, at the moment. And so you do have to look perhaps slightly into the future as far as the UK is concerned, and that is in the, uh, in the future a UK, if, if Brexit goes ahead, will have less authority internationally by itself unless it tags along with what uh, the message that Mr. Pompeo has actually brought to the United Kingdom at the moment. And that's, that's particularly important to, to, dis- to discover where the Britain actually wants to stand.
0: So, uh, Scott Lucas, um, Iran has uh, given two months, it is, uh, for, for the EU to, to think about the situation or, or else it's threatening to actually um, intensify its uranium or re- restart and uh, go against the deal that it's it signed. What do you think will happen in the interim? What do you think the next development will be?
4: Well, I think there's two different tracks and they're very different to keep eyes on. One is the Americans are going to keep on putting on more sanctions and we're going to try to pursue this to the path of confrontation. Now, neither the Europeans nor Iran want that, so that leads to the second track, and that is what Iran needs is economic links to offset the U.S. sanctions and serious problems within their economy. The Europeans offered those links to the Iranians at the start of February through what was called a special purpose vehicle for non-dollar trade. But when they offered that to the Iranians at the same times, they did say, look, we still have serious concerns about your missile program and about your activities in the Middle East and allegedly bomb and assassination plots in Europe. So I think the question between Europe and Iran where the focus is, is will Iran accept that to get that vital economic link and to offset the US, that it needs to curb its missile program and it needs to rethink its Middle East approach or will it continue to take a tough line? Because if it continues to take a tough line over missiles in the Middle East, then the Europeans, I think, are saved from the dilemma because they can put their hands up and say, well, look, Tehran isn't cooperating. I don't think that means that they will go along with the U.S. in trying to confront Tehran. But I think it's much more likely that they will take, let's say, a divergent position over upholding the nuclear agreement and restoring economic links with Iran uh, in the near future.
3: Uh, let, let's, let me give you a, a, a thought Just just a wild thought. Uh, The uh, United States sends the Abraham Lincoln strike aircraft carrier with all its escorts into the eastern Mediterranean. And so we're sending them there because we think there could be trouble, but if there is trouble, just as a warning that we can actually rain down some sort of hell on you. Uh, At the same time, it puts uh, a backup bomber squadron into... Diego Garcia B-52s. So that's it's it's covered for, for that sort of defensive organisation. Uh, in the meantime, in uh, in uh, in Israel, they sit there planning to do a surgical strike on perhaps a place that is actually recommissioning or whatever part of the uh, Iranian nuclear program. And perhaps that strike actually takes place. It wouldn't be for the first time that takes out takes place and knocks out an organization. And then we have a very tense threat. What happens? Well, frankly, the the Iranians haven't got much they can do other than uh, tactical or even regional sort of retaliation. But the Americans sit there saying, look, here we have a crisis. We have averted what perhaps in Europe we might sort of anticipate. We have done it. Our policy was right, and it is better now to to come along with this on or, or, or come along with this, and then next day you read the congratulations in the uh, in the Jerusalem Post.
0: Scott Lucas, how likely is that scenario, do you think?
4: It will be exactly the opposite. I think Christopher summarized <laughs> what the American administration hopes that they can have the show of force uh, to make the Iranians possibly overreact. But if the Americans fire on the Iranians, or if Israel fires on the Iranians, Let me just give you a checklist very quickly. First of all, it's chaos inside Iran, and you don't know who might take over, and you don't know what position they might take. They wouldn't necessarily be our friends. In neighboring Iraq, you will see overwhelming sympathy on behalf of Iran, which will tilt that country away from the United States and away from Europe. You will see this increasing further discord in Syria. Hezbollah in Lebanon will step up its activities, including possibly attacking the Israelis, The Arab world will probably be forced, despite their dislike of Iran, to criticize the Americans. If you have any type of Israeli or American military action against Iran, as opposed to trying to encourage reform inside Iran, which is most differently, you will lose your foothold, not only with Iran, but across the Middle East, probably for a generation.
0: So what is the correct course of action, do you think, for the international community?
4: Well, the first thing is to put something back in place, and that is While the nuclear deal does not solve a series of issues with the Iranians, such as their activities in the Middle East, it took a pawn off the chessboard. You need to take that pawn off again, get back to the nuclear deal, because the Iranians have observed it, they have complied with it, and it means we haven't faced the prospect of a military nuclear program in Tehran. Then beyond that, you need to take a constructive but firm line with the Iranians, for example, look, over Syria and over Lebanon, stop supporting murderous regimes like the Assad regime, stop destabilizing countries, for example, through some of the activities of Hezbollah. In other words, we think there is a way of working with you for stability in the Middle East, but you, like us, have to step back from trying to encourage proxy forces or encouraging dictatorships, who are the root causes of the problems that face both the West and Tehran at
3: this point. Actually, what we get is also a reminder of what the EU's position has been along, uh, right along with this, and that is that we we really ought, we've got something which is a close to what we want going. Let's try and preserve it. And there was the there was the difference between the United States position. Um, now, it's one other side of this. Look around the world, and it, Iran, China, no. Iran-China, yes, in as much that you've got these threats, which the Trump administration believes that has got proof that you make these threats, which get ex- people excited. But in, in effect, you can actually sort things out uh, by making those threats. And then big issues uh, don't become even bigger and you get back to where you were before.
0: Scott Lucas, just to bring you back to to Mike Pompeo's first visit to the UK, uh, he'll also be sounding out British politics, wouldn't he have been? And after all, Mr Hunt, one of the leading candidates, take over number 10. What do you think he would have gleaned
4: from this visit? Oh, I don't think Pompeo's the key person regarding British politics. Uh, There are other people around Donald Trump who want Boris Johnson to be the next prime minister. And I'll put it just as bluntly as that. Beyond that, what I would tell you is significant about Pompeo's visit is a contrast over what we face regarding trade and Brexit. Pompeo wasn't here to discuss a U.S.-U.K. trade deal, that holy grail that gets us out of Brexit difficulties. He was discussing, in fact, jacking up trade conflict with China, which would have repercussions upon us as well. So, in other words, the U.K. cannot look to the U.S. for some type of Brexit salvation. Instead, in part because of the Trump administration's approach, and the UK at the same time distancing itself from Europe, you're almost isolating yourself, indeed taking yourself into rough waters, at the same time that you could take a country like Italy. Why do I mention Italy? While we find ourselves in problems over trade, Italy is the first European country to sign up to the uh, Belt and Road Initiative of China. And that gives you a very contrasting approach in terms of the economic and political future.
0: Mm. And on the subject of that joint press conference yesterday, I know you just off the plane from from the U.S. Did you get a chance to see it and what did you make of it if you did?
4: Oh, I, I, I saw it and it, it it trotted out the standard lines because no one's going to say in public uh, that's it on your bike mate and send Mike <laughs> Pompeo to Washington. Uh, we have all the platitudes about the special relationship, but what I would say is, is if you decode the lines, uh, Mike Pompeo invoking Churchill to justify uh, escalation of a military line with Iran is in sharp contrast to maybe the line from Mr. Churchill that jaw jaw is better than war war. And then beyond the press conference, one other note to pick up is, is that when Mike Pompeo, because he was scheduled to give a speech uh, at the Margaret Thatcher Foundation, uh, when he invoked Margaret Thatcher to say that Margaret Thatcher would never have agreed to let Huawei into Britain's 5G network That was a shot at the Prime Minister, Theresa May, and that goes beyond any type of superficial rhetoric about the supposed special relationship that we cling on to.
0: On that note, we'll leave it for today. Professor Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham, thank you for your time today. Now, Libya is still in the middle of a killing war. The self-styled General Khalifa Haftar remains determined to seize the capital, Tripoli. The present prime, Pr- prime minister, Fayez al-Sarraj, is touring Europe this week, including the UK, asking why the countries that once supported him are not demanding a ceasefire. Christopher Lee, uh, where have they got to exactly? Well,
3: he's been he's been to Germany um, and he's been to been to Paris. And he's saying to other countries, especially in continental Europe, why are you not backing up your supposed Lisa's support for us by actions? Now, he gets the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is the, is the, is the one country that is trying more to help. Um, the United Kingdom has organized uh, a, a decolonization um, a ceasefire. In other words, this war has got to stop. The only way you can stop it is getting the United Nations to shove uh, before the Security Council. That doesn't mean it will stop, uh, because the general Khalifa Haftar is determined to ignore everybody. But it is the one way in which you can actually say to other people on the Security Council, which of course includes France, it includes the United States, um, that there ought to be a ceasefire, and will you say so publicly? Because once you do that, you then have people putting up contingency plans to say, will we go in there and perhaps help a ceasefire?
0: The ceasefire line itself. I mean, how how would that be? How would that be drawn up? Is it possible?
3: I think it's probably um, it's only it's possible for an agreement to get the uh, Khalifa Haftar...
0: He'd have to push back to where he started well, he, from, wouldn't he? Is that, not that's necessarily a demand. Where he, he,
3: he, not where he he started from, but he can actually sort of withdraw back a certain certain way. But don't forget, there are other countries involved in this, countries from from from, from the uh, Arab League involved in this and involved uh, on, on behalf of the so-called government of, of Libya. And they may not draw back because that is the close-air support that the that uh, the the, the uh, government actually sort of needs and also it's the only way to sort of uh, get into uh, General Haftar's uh, organisation to get into his, uh, certainly at brigade level, uh, very quickly. What
0: what kind of obligations do you think the UK has towards Libya given Operation LME? You
3: know, the United Kingdom helped bring down Gaddafi uh, in 2011. Uh, it did so because it felt it was important to do so but it also did so because of the oil, the oil in 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 uh, in, in Libya. Um, Libya's got its world GDP position is about well, in the 70s. In the 70s, at the moment, it is not such a prospect that you can actually manipulate very much, and so the United Kingdom does not want to get into another wet war. And it's as simple as that at the moment.
0: Christmas stay with us. Now that is a little bit of sound from the army inter-unit boxing final earlier this week. Huge numbers of boxing fans apparently watched the BFBS live stream of the fight between 3 Para and 13 Air Assault Support Regiment RLC. So what is the appeal of army boxing? Our sports editor John Knighton is here to tell us more. Hi John. Uh, the live stream of this event had thousands tuning in to watch. Is this a new interest or, or simply a new way
5: to watch? I think boxing's always been hugely successful uh, in, the, in the military, Kate, and uh, involving the paras, and Every time you get the parachute regiment involved in its boxing, and suddenly it takes off. Uh, we sort of advertise this, uh, v- you know, through the various social media, and you, you know, tagline three para boxing, and suddenly it goes bonkers because the para family. We're talking veterans, we're talking you know families, etc., etc. It just mushrooms, and it was huge. And
0: you say you say boxing is kind of the ultimate sport to watch, don't you?
5: It's it's one of. The, I mean, boxing and rugby are probably the two biggest sports, sort of uh, in the military. If you add cricket as well, but but certainly boxing you know it brings together doesn't it everything all the elements you expect i've got a quote here actually of all the factors which makes for success in battle the spirit of the warrior is the most decisive that spirit will be found in full measure in the men who wear the maroon beret Hmm. that's a quote from field marshal the viscount montgomery of alamein you could apply that to the boxing ring just as much as you can to the battlefield
0: how good boxers do military personnel make compared to civilians
5: Oh, terrific. I mean, if you look at the the current army boxing squad, they've got so many British champions. I was co-commentating uh, the other night with uh, a Scottish champion, a female Scottish champion, and an English champion as well uh, in amateur boxing, and some of them are going on to become professionals Is that just well?
0: simply about the training or is it about the kind yeah. of people that actually want to do boxing who are in the military?
5: The army boxing squad are the only full time sports squad in the British military. Uh, they train, you know, 24-7. Uh, they're very, very good, but these guys from the, the Paras, you put the Paras and anyone together from 16 Air Air, Air, Air Airborne Brigade together, it'll be bonkers. This was the ninth victory for Three Para since 2004. Two Para have won it as well. It's just, it's just in the blood, isn't it?
3: I always think, uh, John, uh, when I think of Three Para, I just assume they're all boxers. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to anybody, talk to anybody from you know the boss down. Yeah. They talk boxing. They do. So, if, so and they do talk boxing in a big way. They also look as if they... A lot of them actually look as if they've quite recently been in in the ring, whereas presumably they
5: rehearsals were. John,
0: John, is there anything to beat, uh, when you're watching uh, military boxing, uh, an NCO bringing down an officer?
5: Oh Well, that, that, that of course, <laughs> is the ultimate accolade, isn't it? If you're a private soldier and you're up against, a, certainly, it's say, an, an intercompany novice event, if you're, a, if you're a young private soldier and you're up against you know your company commander or whatever is a, is a captain and you knock him out then you are a hero and the
3: captain says i trained him
5: absolutely is that why
0: most people go into boxing in the military <laughs> no, it's most, it's beat the, up the officers most, no, it's the
3: reason that most people join
5: three para
0: <laughs> john uh, in one work is there a most memorable bout
5: when two para met three para in 2013 that was a night to remember,
0: John Knighton. Good to have you on the program. Thank you. That is all we have time for today. Have you got an opinion or anything in, on, on anything in the program? Send us a tweet at BFBS Rep. You can join us again same time next week, six thirty UK time on Forces Radio BFBS. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you very much for listening. Speak to you again soon. Bye bye.